The reading for the day is the book of Titus. From Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm sent to bring about the faith of God's chosen people and a knowledge of the truth that agrees with godliness. Their faith and this knowledge are based on the hope of eternal life that God, who doesn't lie, promised before time began. God revealed his message at the appropriate time through preaching, and I was trusted with preaching this message by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you behind in Crete was to organize whatever needs to be done and to appoint elders in each city, as I told you. Elders should be without fault. They should be faithful to their spouse and have faithful children who can't be accused of self-indulgence or rebelliousness. This is because supervisors should be without fault as God's managers. They shouldn't be stubborn, irritable, addicted to alcohol, a bully, or greedy. Instead, they should show hospitality, love what is good, and be reasonable, ethical, godly, and self-controlled. They must pay attention to the reliable message as it has been taught to them so that they can encourage people with healthy instruction and refute those who speak against it. In fact, there are many who are rebellious people, loudmouths, and deceivers, especially some of those who are Jewish believers. They must be silenced because they upset entire households. They teach what they shouldn't to make money dishonestly. Someone who is one of their own prophets said, People from Crete are always liars, wild animals, and lazy gluttons. This statement is true. Because of this, correct them firmly so that they can be healthy in their faith. They shouldn't pay attention to Jewish myths and commands from people who reject the truth. Everything is clean to those who are clean, but nothing is clean to those who are corrupt and without faith. Instead, their mind and conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, but they deny God by the things that they do. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified to do anything good. But you should talk in a way that is consistent with sound teaching. Tell the older men to be sober, dignified, sensible, and healthy in respect to their faith, love, and patience. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good rather than being gossips or addicted to heavy drinking. That way they can mentor young woman, women to love their husbands and children and to be sensible, morally pure, working at home, kind and submission, submissive to their own husbands so that God's word won't be ridiculed. Likewise, encourage the younger men to be sensible in every way. Offer yourself as a role model of good actions. Show integrity, seriousness, and a sound message that is above criticism when you teach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because they won't find anything bad to say about us. Tell slaves to submit to their own masters and please them in everything they do. They shouldn't talk back or steal. Instead, they should show that they are completely reliable in everything so that they may, might make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives right now by rejecting ungodly lives and the desires of this world. 
At the same time, we wait for the blessed hope and the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us in order to rescue us from every kind of lawless behavior and cleanse a special people for himself who are eager to do good actions. Talk about these things. Encourage and correct with complete authority. Don't let anyone disrespect you. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities. They should be obedient and ready to do every good thing. They shouldn't speak disrespectfully about anyone, but they should be peaceful, kind, and show complete courtesy toward everyone. We were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and slaves to our desires and various pleasures too. We were spending our lives in evil behavior and jealousy. We were disgusting, and we hated other people. But when God, our Savior's kindness and love, appeared, he saved us because of his mercy, not because of righteous things we had done. He did it through the washing of new birth and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, which God poured out upon us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So since we have been made righteous by his grace, we can inherit the hope of eternal life. This saving is reliable. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God might give careful attention to doing good. These things are good and useful for everyone. Avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, and fights about the law because they are useless and worthless. After a first and second warning, have nothing more to do with the person who causes conflict because you know that someone like this is twisted and sinful, so they condemn themselves. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, try to come to me in Nicopolis, because I've decided to spend the winter there. Help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with enthusiasm so that they won't need anything. But our people should also learn to devote themselves to doing good in order to meet pressing needs so they aren't unproductive. Everyone with me greets you. Greet those who love us faithfully. Grace be with you. Whew, the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. All right, y'all. It's time we had a conversation about Paul. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And the scripture that we read, the book of Titus, in its entirety, reads like a laundry list of the worst nonsense to ever come out of Christianity. And yes, I just called a piece of the Bible nonsense. And I think that, uh, you know, if you are here, Cameron and I were talking about this book earlier, and he was like, Woofta, why did you pick this? This is like everything that Zhao stands against. And I was like, I didn't pick it. It's just the next shortest book of the Bible. So here we go. And that's the beauty of uh, digging into the text and, and trying to follow. It, it takes us to the places that we wouldn't normally want to go, and it forces us to confront them. So we have to confront Titus today, which means we have to confront Paul. Now, some of you may already have feelings about Paul. Some of you may not. Um, Paul is essentially the second most prominent character in the New Testament after Jesus. We get introduced to Paul in Acts, which is the account of the early church after Jesus's resurrection. Uh, and then 
uh, a bunch of the rest of the books are actually written by him or, and we'll talk more about this, attributed to him. And therefore written sort of in the vein of his teachings by his students and people who say that they are in the tradition of Paul. Paul has become so prominent that in fact there are a lot of Christian churches in this country who I experienced uh, at least as really prioritizing Paul over Jesus. There is a surprising amount of Paul influence in the church and you might actually be surprised to see how many more people preach from texts or teach from texts that are either written by Paul or attributed to Paul more often than they preach the words of Jesus. Now, this is by design for a lot of reasons. One, Paul is writing letters to churches, and so in some ways it's easier to teach as instruction, but in other ways it's just easier to take out of context. Jesus was telling stories, for instance. Paul has commands. The people who want to approach the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts can find that a lot more easily in Paul's writing than in Jesus's, who really tends to evade questions that are are posed to him around, should I do this or that? And so we've got this proliferation of Paul and Pauline texts, but Paul's really complicated. And in fact, if we look at all of the letters from Paul, we see a really broad diversity of theological positions and a really different set of politics that changes letter to letter. So do we like Paul? Do we hate Paul? Personally, I've got my qualms with Paul, but I think Paul is amazing as the first uh, builder of the church. He was an incredible evangelist. He was someone who was changed by the gospel, I've had to really work on my relationship with Paul, though, because the Paul that I was introduced to came first and foremost from texts like Titus. Titus, First and Second Timothy, the Peters. There are a bunch of letters that are attributed to Paul that have some really, really nasty stuff in them, particularly about slavery, about women, Um, about hierarchy and order and respectability. These are the things that get gobbled up by mainstream American Christian churches, especially ones that are on the more conservative bent of hierarchical order, patriarchy, um, and I would say assimilation into American imperialism. But we're going to see again that that is by design because these letters are steeped in Roman imperialism. I mentioned that I have had to reconcile my relationship with Paul and I'm still working on it. Uh, But there are some resources out there to do that. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you get a little bit more excited about Paul than you may be right now, understandably. As with every sermon in this series, I'm going to try and give you a really valuable resource that can help you with this. And today's might be my favorite so far. It's a book called The First Paul by scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. I love Borg and Crossan. They collaborate a lot. They have really shaped my understanding of a lot of different scriptures, so I have referenced their work before. But this one might be the most perspective-shifting for me about the New Testament. And that, like, that says a lot because what they do in the first Paul is they make what I find to be an extremely compelling argument that most of 
uh, Paul's works, I, well, let me try again. They make an extremely compelling argument that there is a real Paul, a first Paul, the Paul that we hear about in Acts, and that those genuine letters that are written by Paul actually have a really radical understanding of the gospel, one that is inspiring and exciting, that is consistent with the teachings of Jesus, that's actually pretty consistent with the teachings of Zhao, but that over time, Paul's followers distort that image and that message into other texts that are the disputed letters, and that by the time they reach what are called the pastoral letters, everything gets turned all the way upside down. Now, this is a controversial subject. Who wrote these letters? But it's also not that controversial. There are seven letters that are considered genuine Pauline letters. I'm not going to list them for you, but there are seven. You can find it on Wikipedia. Certainly, there are people who would be out there um, tending towards the conservative end, the biblical inerrancy end, that say, well, if the letter says Paul, it's from Paul. But there are a lot of historians and literary critics and, and all these people who have brought their skills to bear on researching historical ancient documents that say, oh no, this is totally common that people would put their name on something that was, they felt consistent with their teacher. So in the same way that I would call myself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, they would indicate that actually by putting their work in the name of their teacher, which was actually not about hubris, but about humility, saying, oh, I, I got all this from my guy Paul. And so it's about putting that in the tradition. And so it's not, you know, there are people who are like, well, the Bible wouldn't lie to us, but that's not what's happening here. This is another genre issue, another context issue that says, hey, that's actually not even what this ever was intended to be. No one's trying to pull one over on you. They are attributing it to a tradition to give it authority and to say, Paul is the, is the one who gave us everything we know. But that means that, that that tradition gets distorted over time. And we get what end up being really contradictory messages from some of the letters written by Paul versus written by other people in Paul's name. So who was Paul? Paul, we learn about in Acts, was somebody who was... Um, a, a passionate um, Jewish believer, much like Jesus. And he was kind of recruited into this anti-Christian project. And so he was part of establishment actually persecuting Christians until he had a wild, beautiful, powerful, mystical experience on the road to Damascus, encountering the risen Jesus in this, in this fantastical way. And he was changed. He went through his, this conversion. He became a Christian. He started studying the teachings of Jesus. He, he started um, sitting at the feet of the followers of Jesus and eventually became uh, this teacher and church planter and, uh, and mentor to a lot of churches that were, that were building up. And so to understand Paul, we have to understand not only Paul's personal biography, but the context these authors that talk about uh, that talk about Paul Borg and Crossan, they they say that reading epistles, which is just the churchy word for letters, is always reading someone else's mail. And if you're going to be reading someone else's mail, 
you're going to be lost a lot of the time. And you need to orient yourself by finding out context. So they urge us to understand who Paul is, but also who Paul is writing to, these early house churches. So these are underground churches, gatherings in the Jesus movement. They are themselves set within that early Jesus movement. And they call it the Jesus movement because there was no such thing as Christianity as such. It was still this kind of contested space. Some folks said this is, a, this is just being a Jewish person who has identified Jesus as the Messiah. Some people were saying, well, this has to go beyond Judaism to include um, Gentiles and, and non-Jewish people because Jesus is the Savior of all. But either way, they were all kind of following after Jesus, building this movement toward freedom and liberation and hope and the kingdom. They were called the people of the way. But that was very different than what eventually came to be known as Christianity. So then beyond that, to understand that, you have to understand Judaism in the first century. To understand Paul and what he's writing about. And then beyond that, you really have to understand the biggest, most imposing setting over all of this, which is the Roman Empire. Paul's letters are going to be shaped by all of those different factors, going to make references to all of those things. That was the soup that everyone was living in. And so when we don't understand things now, it's because we're so removed that we have to then do our work to get back in and understand. So how do we know then that not all of these letters were written by that Paul? Well, there are scholars who looked at a lot of things context of the letters, um, the, the claims made in the letters, the, uh, the syntax, vocabulary um, that was used in the letters that we know were from Paul. Uh, how do they match up to some of these other ones? And theology. They said, what seems to be consistent here and what seems to be divergent? So scholars, generally speaking, have identified three categories. The genuine letters, the disputed letters, where some people are like, oh, it could be, maybe, maybe not. And then the pastoral letters, which are widely understood to not have been written by Paul. And spoiler, Titus is one of those last ones. Borg and Crossan break it down further. They definitely think that the seven letters are the only genuine ones from Paul, and they think that the disputed letters were not written by Paul. And in fact, then they sort of construct these, these categories, these, these various Pauls. There's the first Paul, the, the original Paul, who wrote those seven letters. They call him the radical Paul because they understand that he has a radical vision of the gospel that is very close to the teachings of Jesus. Then they say there are the disputed letters. They call this the conservative Paul. These are the followers who, in the time after, in the decades after Paul's life, started to really tone down the work. They think of this as post-Paul and pseudo-Paul. And then by the time you get to the pastoral letters, they call this the reactionary Paul. This is anti-Paul. And in fact, so much of what comes out in those three pastoral letters seems to completely contradict what Paul's teachings were in the genuine letters. They spend time in the book in ways that if you want to fall in love with Paul, I really encourage. They identify Paul as a mystic, somebody who had this mystical experience of God, who's concerned with union with God, someone who 
wants to move from beyond believing or thinking about God into knowing God, intimacy with God. And that that shapes who Paul is in his genuine sources. But I'm really grateful for the ordering of these letters because so far in this series, we have actually read one letter of those seven genuine. And that is the letter to Philemon. So if you want to check that out, if you missed that Sunday, you can head back to not a slave, but a sibling. Um, And we've got, you know, the videos from previous uh, Sundays, or you can listen to that on the podcast that we put out. Just search Zao MKE Church, uh, and you can hear that sermon. But basically, in the letter to Philemon, Paul takes this radical anti-slavery stance. Now, I argue that he's not actually trying to decimate the systems and institutions of slavery. Um, Borg and Crossan actually think that maybe he was, but at a more individual level. Because functionally, what he does is he sends Onesimus, who was enslaved, back to Philemon, who was the enslaver, saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you because I trust that given the fact that we are all siblings in Christ, you will receive him as a brother, right? And there's a whole lot of weight behind that. Paul throws his weight around and basically says, you know, a bunch of things, including like, oh, Onesimus was here for me when I was in prison. I'm sure he was here as your representative. Wasn't he, Philemon? Where were you? I know that I could tell you to do this, but I want you to do it of your own free will. But you're going to do that, right? And And Paul calls on all of the witnesses of the church. He addresses that letter not just to Philemon, but but says, and I want this person paying attention and this person paying attention. So before everyone, Philemon, what are you going to do when I send Onesimus back to you? Are you going to free him? And, And the answer, of course, is yes. That would have had enormous consequences. Philemon was a wealthy uh, benefactor in the church, and And so it was a risky move to piss him off. But also, that would have started a lot of controversy. You can't just free one slave. In fact, you know, when you think about what might have happened if if Onesimus said, hey, yeah, you're a Christian now, therefore I'm your brother. If there were any other uh, enslavers in that community they would have had to account for that too because here's their mentor, Paul, writing them from prison to say like, well, obviously we're all family now, so you wouldn't be treating anyone as a slave, right? So the the communities would have had to contend with that. You've got a radical anti-slavery Paul promoting this vision of equality, this vision of family, this radical reorientation, the leveling of hierarchy, the kingdom. That's the radical Paul. That's Philemon. But then, and we haven't read these because they're a bit longer, but I'll give you a little summary. You get to the disputed letters, the conservative Paul. This is in Colossians and Ephesians. In Colossians and Ephesians, suddenly slavery is normal. The letters address slaves, which would have actually still been really anti-empire, right? Like, and that's how people get away with defending Paul on this. They're like, ooh, it's still really radical for the time. Because Paul is saying, slaves, obey your masters. So addressing slaves directly would have been countercultural, certainly. 
But the message is still, slavery is normal, slavery does not need to be upended, and it is perfectly acceptable to have a relationship uh, where one person is enslaved by another. And so, you know, you've got slaves obey your masters. The other thing that's still countercultural in Colossians and, uh, and Ephesians is there's a sort of reciprocity. Because in addition to addressing the slaves and saying, obey your masters, the, the authors in the tradition of Paul address the masters and say, masters, be nicer to your slaves. Now, there's still a four-to-one really, four ratio of address to slaves versus masters, but you have this kind of in-between space where the conservative Paul is upholding the social order, the hierarchy, but undermining it just a little bit by saying, you know, slaves, you are human beings who uh, deserve to be addressed directly. And by the way, masters, you should probably have some obligations to these human beings that you have enslaved to. So it's still more generous than the Roman culture, but it's a huge, huge shift to just acquiesce. Then we get to Titus. In Titus, there's no longer address, a direct address. Tell your slaves to obey their masters, to be submissive to their masters. And then that's it. There's no mutuality. There's nothing obligating enslavers to, to treat the people they have enslaved in any kind of way with any kind of dignity. End of story. And this is all supposedly for the gospel, but it is 100% Roman Empire. You see this as well in the nonsense in Titus about patriarchy. Now, there is a radical Paul on patriarchy. The radical Paul on patriarchy can be seen in 1 Corinthians. You've got uh, equality in the family where he talks about marriage. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's a conversation about abstinence. Should uh, a husband and wife, because that's the construction, but should a husband and wife um, ever uh, choose abstinence in their marriage? in order to, to please God. Paul says, sure, if, if only by mutual agreement. So there is this understanding that like, they can only make decisions about how they want to relate to one another sexually together, mutually, as equals. Similarly, the conversation about divorce says, uh, you know, divorce under a Christian household, not recommended. Um, if you are married to a pagan who will not let you live at peace, okay, but it's better. And this is where Paul, again, dress, directly addresses both men and women. You know, it is better for a woman who is married to a pagan husband to stay married to him if there can be peace so that uh, the, you know, for the betterment of that person, that they might find the gospel. Similarly, husbands married to pagan wives. And so there is this equal and mutual address. Even when Paul is talking about virginity, he actually addresses men first, saying, are you bound to a wife? Then there's equality in the assembly. That uh, There's actually this kind of like weird aside about whether women can speak in the assembly with their heads veiled or unveiled. And this can feel very conservative because it's like women can only speak, pray, prophesy in the assembly with a veil over their head. 
But this is another instance of like we're reading someone else's mail and there's something weird going on here that doesn't make sense to us. And it's, it's not necessarily what we would assume about like, oh, women can stand up in church, but only if they keep themselves covered. It relates to social conventions of the day, specifically related to virginity and marriage. And what Borg and Crossan argue is that there actually was, was a controversy within that church because married women were declaring themselves virgins and deciding on marital celibacy um, and, and therefore taking off their veils, which they would have worn as a part of, of their marriage, and saying, I'm prophesying as a virgin of the Lord. Um, and really, actually, this gets back to Paul being like, hey, you got to talk to your partner about this. <laughs> like, you can't just, like, blow up your marriage. You've got to actually do this together, and you can only do that by m- mutual agreement. And again, he addresses men in this way that doesn't make sense in our culture, saying, you know, men, he's got like a weird thing about hair and your long hair isn't cute. But like, again, that's just about like, these are your obligations to one another. So there, it assumes that both men and women are prophesying and praying in the assembly of God, because it says any man who prophesies or prays, and it says any woman who prophesies or prays. And then finally, you have the evidence of Paul up, down, and sideways in his letters addressing the apostles, the ones who teach, the ones who lead. And consistently, when Paul is writing genuine letters, he's writing them to women and to men. Paul treats women with authority. This is the genuine Paul, the radical Paul. Then you have Colossians, Ephesians coming in with the conservative Paul. And what happens? the same exact pattern as with slavery. You've got hierarchy of patriarchy renormalized. But there's a little subversion, there's a little twist. Women are still addressed. Wives submit to your husbands. And then there are calls for reciprocity. And husbands, you too. You too. But there is clearly a hierarchy that's not being challenged here. This is a far cry from there is no male or female. There is no slave or master, Jew or Greek. This is a conservative Paul. This is what comes after Paul. And then, finally, reactionary Paul. We've got in Timothy the most troubling passage, where it basically says, women, shut up and sit down. You can only learn in silence uh, with full submission. This is well after Paul. This is the reactionary Paul, according to Borg and Crossan. It's an explicit contradiction of 1 Corinthians because obviously Paul is there addressing women who speak in the assembly of God. And now here, we've got something completely different. So, how does this happen? Why has this happened? And why did it end up in our Bible? I think these are really important, important questions. Um, And I think that it can feel like a betrayal if we've been taught to believe that the Bible is this infallible, inerrant, perfectly every word breathed from God, again from the Timothys. Sorry to everyone named Tim. (laughs) You're fine. But but from the pastoral letters, again, those reactionary um, letters that came well after the original teachings are the ones that are quoted to justify saying all of this is directly from God. 
And, and so that's why it can feel like such a betrayal when I say, hey, some of this, not good. It's just not good. It's just wrong. But I want you to hold space for that possibility. What if some parts of the Bible have wrong teachings in them? Now, don't panic. What if some of the Bible has wrong teachings in it? Honestly, you already know this, right? You already know that there are some things in the Bible that are wrong. And you've had to contend with them some way or another. But I want to offer you a way to think about this that says God is still good, the Bible is still holy, and this is still a useful text. The practical question of like how did these letters that were not written by Paul but were claimed to have been written by Paul end up in the Bible? Practically speaking, the answer is a council of human beings who were already part of an established church that really wanted to maintain its authority and found some very appealing things in here about social order and respectability chose to put them in. We could be generous and just say human beings did their best. Human beings did their best within the power structures that were influencing them greatly um, to preserve the teachings of Jesus and preserve the Judeo-Christian tradition in compiling these scriptures. And this is what we got. But from the sort of God's plan sense, why would God allow these things to be in here? And that's what I hear from a lot of biblical inerrant promoters, right? God wouldn't let you be led astray. God wouldn't put something in so confusing. And I got to say, it's confusing. It's just confusing. There's a lot of confusing stuff in here. And I don't think that God expects each and every one of us to be biblical scholars, but I do think that God has given us a messy, complicated text to match our messy, complicated creation. And that we shouldn't pretend that somehow the Bible is going to be more straightforward, more simple, more easy to comprehend than any other experience of human life or search for the divine. It's complicated. And that's actually kind of a theme in here, that there will be teachers who teach falsely, that only some will be able to know and comprehend and understand. And our call is to work together to do that, to lean on one another. And we don't all have to be biblical scholars and historical context experts, but some of us better be. Because while we're reading somebody else's mail, we can't pretend that it's been addressed to us. We have to understand where it comes from. I do believe, though, that God works all things for the good of those who love God. That is something from one of the um, genuine radical Paul letters. And I do believe that there is good that can come from these letters being in the Bible. That doesn't offset all the bad that's been done from these letters being in the Bible. But I think that there's actually something incredibly powerful here that God is inviting us to take away from the presence of these letters. I think it is the receipts. I think it is evidence of the pattern that happens in the de-radicalization of the message of the gospel. So why would we see in just a few short years, I mean, like this is happening over the course of one century that we're seeing radical Paul, then conservative Paul, then reactionary Paul. That is one twentieth of the history between the life and teachings of Jesus and now. 
And in that short amount of time, we see this radical, anti-hierarchy, egalitarian, beautiful, system-upending, anti-empire, counterculture vision of the kingdom of God become, let's make the gospel attractive. Let's not do anything to make anybody mad. Hey, everybody, fall in line. Look exactly like the culture around you. What is in that anymore that's become totally morally bereft? But that's a pattern that we see in all kinds of teachings. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that they, they call this reactionary Paul. And what that means is that they're actually reacting to something radical and cool that's happening. So when we see in the letters uh, in First and Second Timothy, we see these instructions about, about women and women shouldn't be speaking in the assembly of God. Well, that's only happening, that, that reaction is only happening because there is a flourishing of women leading in religious spaces, which is cool and amazing and countercultural and revolutionary. And so it's actually a reaction to the radical gospel. It's not just, oh, we should teach important things and it's important that women know that they need to be silent. Borg and Crossan note that there was no law against women becoming senators in the Roman Empire because it never happened, it never came up. Why would they bother putting that into law? And reading that reminded me of actually the history of the United Methodist Church and anti-queerness. Because part of our struggle right now is to undo some legislation that was written in the 1970s saying basically that queer folks were, uh, that, that queerness was not compatible with the, with the teachings of the gospel and that therefore queer folks would not be included in the life and power of the church. But that happened in 1972. So what came before it? Because that's some reactionary nonsense. Well, before it, in the 1960s, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there, were United Methodist, there was a United Methodist Church who was performing queer marriage ceremonies. And there was a movement to include queer folks in the life and beauty and celebration of the church. And so folks started to bring that up the chain and to say, hey, let's make this a thing. Let's recognize this. And then there was a reaction that shut it all down really, really hard. That's reactionary. And so we see this anti-Paul that's actually trying to undo the radical gospel that Paul's teachings originated. And so we have first this radical Paul, and then the generation that comes after saying, yeah, this is Paul. We're, we follow Paul. And also, like, could we be just like a little, little less intense about it so that we don't get ourselves martyred because he got martyred and like that didn't, that, you know, not for me. Um, and then after that, they're like, oh, but wait a minute. Let's drop all of that nonsense about women and slaves. Come on now. And that's the reactionary anti-Paul because people are starting to see the consequences of living a radical life. It doesn't go over well with the kingdom and the empire. It doesn't go over well with the people who are losing their power to the oppressed folks who are taking their seat at the table. And so you have this push, this push towards conservatism. And it happens slowly at first. It's missional creep. It's well-intentioned. At first, it's respectability. But over time, it becomes anti-gospel. It is the imperial poison that comes in and recreates the hierarchy and values of empire at the cost of the gospel. And for the most part, it does happen with good intentions. If we interpret the best intentions into this text, we see followers of Jesus who are trying to survive. 
Followers of Jesus who are trying not to get themselves killed. Followers of Jesus who are trying to be respectable, who are trying to make Christianity mainstream. And anytime we see a radical counter-cultural revolutionary movement trying to become mainstream and acceptable, we see it lose its soul. We see it lose its soul. And so I want to bring you back into this text, and I want us to look again at it with the lens toward respectability. In chapter 2, the heading that, that the CEB gives this one is teaching all people how to be godly. Well, we know that the God of all creation wants to upend social hierarchy. We know that Jesus Christ, God here on earth, was executed by the Roman hierarchy and authority for sedition, for being too revolutionary. So this is going to be a manual on, on how to overthrow the government, right? No, it says that women should be pure and stay at home and obey their husbands so that God's word won't be ridiculed. It says that the message should be above criticism. It says that critics or opponents shouldn't find anything bad to say about us. And I got to say, not only is that anti-Paul, that is directly anti-Jesus. I'd like to invite you into the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, God's uh, blessings as articulated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Some people call this the core, the heart of Jesus' teachings. It's beautiful. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And for the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is basically saying, my message is not going to go over well. And so when people come at you for it, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. This is, this is not going to sit well with the empire. So don't be looking for that. And, and that's well and good. Be blessed when people talk 